Photography Online, the podcast. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, we discuss some photography stories making the news. We ask what defines someone as a photographer. We debate if focus stacking is all it's hyped up to be. And we ask, does the world really need a new colour film, a hybrid camera, a ridiculously wide-angle lens and a virtual camera assistant? Okay, let's get the first ever Photography Online podcast online. And now, please welcome your hosts for this episode of the Photography Online podcast. A man who keeps his photography so simple, his camera only has two settings, on and off. It's Marcus McAdam. Thank you. And a man who has almost as many photography awards as the number of times he's been married. It's James McCormick. That's me. And here to keep them both in check, a woman I'm told needs no introduction. But I get paid by the word. So please put your hands together for the one, the only, the ever-present, some might say the queen of photography. She brings light to the darkroom, much to the frustration of anyone making a print. Here she is, the wonderful, the talented, the amazing, the remarkable, the outstanding, the phenomenal. Well, I guess I'll just introduce myself then. My name is Ruth Taylor and welcome to our exciting new monthly podcast. If you haven't heard of Photography Online before, we've been producing content for YouTube for four years now but we've never actually tried podcasting before. Now this is strange because most of us are actually from a radio broadcasting background so we thought it was about time to do something which hopefully comes naturally to us. So let me explain how it's all going to work. Every show is going to start with us looking at some photography related stories making the news. Then we will be asking a big question, something we're calling the big question. Our expert panellists are going to try their best to come up with an answer, but I can tell you now it won't be easy. And then we'll be asking what's the point when we discuss a camera technique and we'll be closing every show by looking at some of the latest photo gear to be released and asking does the world really need this? So we're going to get our first ever show off and running with a news story which we were actually very close to um, at the time it happened. So Marcus, why don't you explain all about this? I think you must be referring to the upturned gondola in Venice. I am, yes. Yeah, this is an amazing story. And for anybody who doesn't already know, we go out to Venice for a four-day trip every year, the beginning of December. We take a small group of photographers with us. And I used to live there, so uh, I know it incredibly well. We've been doing this trip for near on 10 years now. So we all know the city incredibly well. Um, And we take time to go and visit the must-see locations and shoot them at the times of day when they work best to their potential. But we also spend a lot of time exploring and showing people the hidden side of Venice, you know, the kind of locations that you'd never really discover without spending a lot of time in the in the city. So um, coincidentally, it was one of these locations where this incident occurred. And only 24 hours earlier, we'd been standing there with our tripods all lined up photographing this gondola as it passes in front of this old sort of decaying uh, doorway. Um, And it's a fantastic shot when the light's right, which is normally about 10 o'clock in the morning, which is why we go there in the morning. And uh, if it had happened 24 hours earlier, we would have had a ringside view. But um, we were none the wiser because we were on Burano um, as the incident happened. And I think, James, you were the first to hear about it, weren't you? Well, I don't know if I was the first, but I was certainly the first of, uh, you know, our group, as it were. And it was on the fresh, fresh news that particular morning when I was... um 
working terribly hard outside a coffee shop just around the corner from the hotel that we always stay at. And as Marcus has just alluded to, we know Venice very well, and we regularly, on our photographic trips there, hire gondolas. The reason we hire a gondola is to have it put it in precise sort of locations for our clients to take pictures and because of the rising sea levels and because of you know the way venice is often a gondola can't actually get under a bridge without somebody in it so the day before i'd been with simone our long-standing gondolier friend and i'd had to go in the gondola to you know to give it some ballast if you like yeah i was gonna say why wasn't ruth or i asked to do that job <laughs> yeah, very amusing um but no it was my bulk that was required at the front of this particular gondola basically to dip the front of it to get it under the the narrow bridges and it gone very successfully the day before i'd leaned over to one side you're given very precise instructions as to what to do and sit still and how to do it and the gondoliers are extremely skilled at what they do and they get you safely around the city of venice now there's been no actual gondola accident of any degree for as long as anyone can remember. So there was a lot of chitter-chatter at this gondolier station. And when I was having my morning coffee, Simone, the gondolier, was showing me this footage. And it was remarkable. And I said to him, this is just is amazing. You know, I've never seen anything like this. And it was extraordinary. You could see all of humanity coming out in this particular set of footage. And I said to him, do you mind sending that to me? I promise, I absolutely give you my word, I will share it with nobody whatsoever. And he said, oh, don't worry about keeping it secret. The whole of Venice knows about it, and by which point pretty much the whole of Italy knew about it, and then it's made it into the wider world, and I believe it's on our Photography Online Facebook page, so do go and have a look. But it was amazing, wasn't it, Marcus? The, the, you could actually see the, the interactions and how different cultures respond in different circumstances. Yeah, well, the cultures here were Italian and Chinese, two very, very different behaving cultures. Um, and just uh, because we haven't discussed it yet, I think what happened here is that there were five passengers in the gondola and, of course, the gondolier at the back as well. And he had asked three of them to lean over to one side so that he could lean the boat to get it under a bridge. Shortly after coming out from underneath the bridge, the two passengers who were on the the, the higher side suddenly decided that they wanted to take a photo from the lower side and without any warning, both nipped over to the other side of the boat and of course the whole thing flipped over with zero warning whatsoever. But there's two videos, one shot uh, from a balcony looking down which gives uh, the rather unusual view of the underside of a gondola, which is something that you never, ever see. Um, but the other one was shot from an adjacent gondola from water level, and that's the one where you get the real human behaviour. So we have the, the Chinese, well, it's a lady who's in the water. I mean, there's five of them in the water, but um, there's a lady who's right in the foreground, and she seems more concerned about the safety of her phone uh, than she is about the safety of her own life because she's trying to drop the phone into the gondola so that that's safe. You know, forget about herself, of course. Just first things first, make sure my phone's okay. But then in the background, you've got this incredibly cool Italian guy 
who is in his genes that no matter what's going wrong in the world, the very least you can do is just stay looking cool. Uh, and he's obviously been under the water because the boat's completely upturned. So I can't imagine how he managed to escape from going under the water. But he's still got his sunglasses on and he's aware that there's a lot of people watching the commotion and it's also being videoed as well. So his number one priority is just, uh, hey, you know, just stay calm and look cool because that's what you do if you're Italian, right? Well, the other bit about humanity is that the continuing videoing of this unfolding scene, and there are a few comments of people saying, why are you videoing that and not helping out? Well, actually, the, everyone was fine. And, and more to the point, James, more to the point, it wasn't our video. So I think people assume that because we posted it, it was us filming from the adjacent gondola. We, we weren't actually there. We were on Burano, which is an adjacent island at the time it happened. So it wasn't even our footage. The previous day, if my gondola had gone over, would you have you know, lent a hand? I know the answer to this, by the way, but would you have lent me a hand? Well, the answer is an emphatic no. Um, and had I have been videoing at the time uh, that you'd overturned, then my first and most important thought would have been, imagine how many views this is going to get. Ah, so you're one of the selfie generation then, basically. Speaking about the dangers of selfies, uh, moving on to another news story that's been doing the rounds recently, uh, all about the dangers of taking selfies. James, what do you know about this? Well, selfies, my favourite occupation... Always to be found every weekend, every day, doing the odd selfie. Uh, now, well, is it an art form? Is it narcissistic? According to the great internet of the world, it's a sign of a dysfunctional society. And there's a big sign saying on the particular page I'm looking at here, with some details, which I know Marcus has as well, that they can also kill. And indeed they can. So, and, and apparently, according to statistics, Marcus, that these are, you know, year after year, these death, these numbers are going up and up and up. I think it's a combination of people, you know, standing in what would be potentially dangerous places anyway, and then their attention is taken over onto the, you know, technicalities of taking the 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 selfie so you're looking at the screen you're not really paying attention to where your footing is and uh yeah you just sort of turn your brain off in terms of looking after yourself really but um there's been 379 recorded cases up to 2021 now these are specifically related now that would make charles darwin proud would it not uh well it, yeah it would do because uh in a minute um i'm going to give you a couple of examples of how people have died taking selfies and it does show um that these people maybe aren't the brightest sparks, but uh, we'll come to that in a moment. But obviously the the rate is going up year on year. Um, the, the top countries for self-related deaths are India, uh, followed by Russia, then the USA, and then Pakistan, which is, uh, is quite surprising. Um, the UK doesn't appear on the list. You'll be pleased to know. So I think, James, you can carry on taking selfies and you'll, you'll be quite safe as long as you stay in this country. As long as I stay in my garden. Yeah, another thing that's actually going in your favour is the average age of uh, people dying from taking a selfie is 23. <laughs> so you're a little bit past that. <laughs> However, the bad news, I do have some bad news for you. The bad news is that males outnumber females by two to one. Ah, that's, is that because we're more daring, do you think? And we're, we're, we put, you know, we're, we're willing to push the boundaries or more stupid. I, I think it's probably the latter. So uh, a couple of my favourite stories. Um, there was a boy, 15 years old, sadly, in the Philippines, who was uh, in the process of taking a photo of himself 
with a loaded gun to his chin. Um, and then obviously he was concentrating more on, you know, maybe the camera angle or anything, got confused as to which hand was holding the phone and which hand was holding the gun. But instead of uh, pressing the shutter button, he pulled the trigger instead. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, that's that is Darwinism in in full effect. Have you got any favourites, James? I do have one actually that springs to mind, and it's uh, in China in a wildlife park. That I mean, I don't know how this could even come about, but there was somebody was trying to do a selfie with a walrus, and it says actually several selfies with a walrus. I mean, once you've got one, you would think that would do, wouldn't you? Really? Well, may- maybe the expression on the walrus's face wasn't right on the first one. Yeah, they are hard to read, aren't they, walruses? Actually, mm. they are hard to get, you know, exactly the je ne sais quoi you want out of a walrus. But anyway, unfortunately, the poor chap was um, drowned by the walrus that pinned him under the water. And the zookeeper was also drowned in the same instant after attempting to save the man. So... You know, yeah, I mean that that is something. When I was doing a little bit of research on this, that's something that popped up quite a lot. Actually, is that it's not just the people who are taking selfies that end up dying here. The University of New South Wales suggests, and that this is a serious thing, they suggest. Do they have universities in New South Wales? Well, according to the University of New South Wales, there is. Hello to our Australian listeners, by the way. So that they suggest, and they're being deadly serious here, that selfies should be treated as a public health hazard. In the same way that driving without a seatbelt or riding a bike without a helmet is. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, don't get me started on cyclists. But anyway, I think they're probably... <laughs> as long as other people aren't involved, if you put that aside, I think we should be encouraging this kind of behaviour because what it's doing is it's just it's eliminating the stupid people. And because the average age is so young, then it's preventing them from passing on their genetics to future generations. So um, this can only be a good thing, right? And it's too, well, that's, that is true. And it's too late for the likes of you and I, we've already passed on our genetics and we're past our primes now anyway, aren't we? So yeah, yeah exactly. But the fact that we've made it into our, well, uh, early fifties for me and maybe mid fifties for you, um, <laughs> then, uh, yeah, that, that just shows that, that we have got a little bit of intelligence. Where did you find that piece of uh, research from a do with our age? Was that from Wikipedia as well? That was on jamesmccormick.com. <laughs> uh, but another one, probably... another one of my uh, favourite stories was uh, in uh, India. Uh, there was a, a guy called, and I have to get this right, Jitendra Kumar Saini, um, who was the financial controller of the State Civil Aviation Authority. And uh, he was killed when he walked onto a helipad, and there's a little bit of a clue as to what's coming up here, helipad, yes. um, as he walked around taking a selfie of the helicopter behind him, wasn't paying full attention and walked into the rear rotor blades and decapitated himself. Oh, my word. Well, that's a happy new year to everyone. <laughs> well, speaking about dead people uh, or things that certainly could have ended badly, there was one particular news story that I'm sure a lot of people saw doing the rounds recently, and it was a YouTuber uh, who's just been jailed for intentionally crashing his plane to get views. Now, Marcus, you've actually got a pilot's licence. What did you make of that story? Um, yeah, well, this was a news story that was around a few months ago when it actually happened, but it's just resurfaced again because the, the guy's just been jailed. But to give you a little bit of a backstory, a guy called Trevor Jacob, who's a 30-year-old from California, was flying uh, a solo flight when he faked uh, an engine failure. Um, and jumped out of a plane with his parachute on and the plane crashed below him. Um, and then he lied to the authorities about, uh, you know, or wasn't honest about what, what had happened. So that's why he's got in trouble. 
But um, this was brought to my attention by a couple of people who knew that I had a private pilot's license and uh, they said, oh, you might be interested in this. So I watched it a few months ago and a couple of things uh, immediately stood out as being suspicious. Um, but primarily, uh, the thing that I thought gave it away the most was the fact that he uh, was wearing a parachute before he'd taken off, which um, isn't standard protocol. I mean, James... Well, you never gave me a parachute. I've been flying with you a few times, and you've never given me a parachute. Yeah, exactly. I've never seen you wear one, actually. I mean, you probably should have done, but I've never seen you wear one. No, I mean, it's just it's just not something you would do uh, flying, you know, in a small aircraft like that, because you generally don't fly high enough uh, to jump out safely with a parachute anyway. So in the event of an engine failure, the safest thing to do is to stay in the aircraft, not to try and jump out. So were you telling me he got into the plane wearing the parachute on his video? Yes, correct. Uh, so it's not as if he was struggling into it or something. He actually it was in the plane anyway. So he entered the plane wearing the parachute. Yes, which kind of gives a little bit of a hint as to the fact that he wasn't planning on landing it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But the other things that gave it away was the fact that he had cameras mounted underneath the wings and he also had another camera on a selfie stick, which when he jumped out, out, he filmed himself holding the selfie stick out. So he was so scared and panicked by, en- was it engine failure or something you said? So Yes, yeah, so en- engine failure, yeah. And he didn't make any of the usual protocols of you know circling around to try and find a safe place to land and bailed out, said, right, I'm out of here. Plane's going down. I'm gone. Um, jumped out. And it was all very dramatic. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say he's going to win any Oscars for his acting abilities because it was quite obvious that none of this had come as a surprise to him. But uh, what he's got in trouble for the most is lying to the authorities because when he reported the crash, which obviously he had to do because he wasn't recorded landing anywhere, so he wasn't going to get away with that, um, he was then told that he had to go and he was responsible for recovery of the wreckage. He then said, well, I don't know where it is. Um, And they later pointed out that he must have known where it was because the footage that was on the GoPro, which was mounted under the wing of the aeroplane, was now on his own Facebook page as part of the video. So he's just as bright as all those people that have, you know, got themselves, I don't know, run over or shot themselves or drowned by walruses. Not that smart after all. Yeah, wow. Yeah, well, so he's just gone to prison for six months. uh, And to give him some credit, when asked what his um, opinion on the verdict was, he said that he thought that a six-month jail sentence was the right decision and said that the entire experience had been incredibly humbling. Uh, So he wants a book deal then. (laughs) I remember seeing that, yeah. Uh, Giving YouTubers everywhere a bad name. Except, of course, and this has taken us very nicely into what's probably the biggest news story of all, the news that after a year off the air, Photography Online is actually back. Bigger and better than ever, wouldn't you say? Well, it's certainly bigger and better, yes. We've had a whole year to work on it. So uh, lots of people have come up to me particularly and said, oh, you know, you're enjoying your year off. And I have to kind of, you know, prevent the frustration visibly appearing on my face and explain gently to them that we're not actually taking a year off. We're just trying to work ahead. So we've been as busy as ever. So, Marcus, is there anything different about this year's shows? Um, Well, we've got a new format. Basically, each show is going to be split up into four segments. And uh, we're always going to start with a photo challenge, which is kind of entertainment led. And then we've got a second feature, which is our essential camera skills, which is where we pass on our knowledge um, about different genres of photography and how to do different things. Um, And then we have a special feature, which is basically 
anything that doesn't fall into the other categories. Um, and then we finish off with uh, uh, Analog Affairs, which is our, our film feature. And there's a few other subtle differences, but the one I think that people will mostly realise is that we now have to have adverts. And notice I say have to, because we don't want to put adverts in it. However, if we don't put adverts in our show, YouTube don't make any money from our programmes. And therefore, they don't promote them to people who wouldn't necessarily be aware of us. So in order to get the algorithm to push our show to more people, uh, we need to put commercials in. Now, personally, I think that the commercials, they ruin the flow. And we put so much work into the flow of our show that it's a real travesty to then ruin that flow. But our hands are tied, pretty much. So... If you're thinking, oh, God, these guys are now put commercials in, so they've sold out. We haven't. We're just trying to please the algorithm. Well, that's all we've got time for, I think, for the news for this month. But don't go anywhere because it is time for... The Big Question. It's a question and it's big. Yes, it is. And this month I'm asking the guys, what defines someone as a photographer? Who wants to go first? Um, I don't really know the direct answer to that, Ruth, and I'm sure Marcus will give his two pennies worth in a minute. But what I would say is that I think photographers are very much divided into two principal camps, and that's those that take pictures for a living and those that don't. Um, so hobbyists, amateurs or whatever, I really don't like the word amateur because they're often far more skilled than the professionals out there. But I think that's one way of defining um, the two sort of principal types of photography that exist. But is one person more of a photographer than another? I'm not so sure. Um, I think they both have merits and they both qualify as photographers. But what I don't like and what I really, really don't like is somebody who just talks about being a photographer or just puts their tripod up in the same old position, waffles on about a load of nonsense and says how hard it was to get to position A or position B. And I don't like a backstory to a picture. A picture should do everything it needs to do. I don't um, know if I agree with that altogether because you're talking about not pictures not having a backstory. I saw a spectacular picture actually taken on one of our trips this year um, of a, a location up in the Italian Dolomites which are lit by lightning. Now, staring at it without any story behind it, it doesn't look that spectacular. It looks kind of odd. But once you have the story behind it and you realise this was actually lit by several lightning strikes over a certain amount of time, that just adds a whole new spin to the way I look at the picture. I, I, th I think the question here is if we take it right back to the basics. So somebody who has never taken a photo and doesn't have a camera, are they a photographer? No. Right. Am I a photographer? No. Is that a trick question? <laughs> You're supposed to say yes without any hesitation. And if you want to, you can elaborate by going on a mighty fine one at that. Yes, Marcus, you are a photographer because you make some money from it. OK, so at some point I have gone from somebody who has never taken a photo and has never had a camera to where I am today. So there was a threshold somewhere that I crossed where I went from not being a photographer to being a photographer. But where was that line? So I'll give you an example. I just bought my daughter, uh, Shiana, a camera for Christmas. The fact that she has a camera, does that make her a photographer? Mm, I don't know. Okay, so let me ask you this then. If I'd bought her a pen and a piece of paper, would that make her a writer? Same question. 
if she's writing stories, why not? But you wouldn't deem somebody as being a writer because you see them with a pen and a piece of paper. But if you see somebody in the street with a camera, you say, oh, look, look over there by that photographer. Just the fact that they've got a camera with them. But if you see somebody over with a pen and a bit of paper, you don't go, oh, look, it's just standing next to that writer over there. So it's like a bird watcher. It's someone who's actually, they're taking part in an activity as opposed to being a professional at it, maybe that's the difference. Well, that's a very good point, Ruth, because there are actually two terminologies for a bird watcher, aren't there? We have a bird watcher, obviously somebody who watches birds, and then we have a twitcher, somebody who counts uh, what they see. And is a twitcher a bird watcher or just a train spotter? I think that when you get proficient at the art, that's when you become a photographer because just because somebody has a camera doesn't mean to say that you can ask them to take a photo and they'll come up with something that's suitable for the situation. Whereas if you ask somebody who's a photographer to take a photo, then providing that they're worth their salt, then they should be able to come up with a product that suits the situation. So I guess what we're arguing about is really, or not even arguing, but what defines somebody as a photographer is like a definition, really. But it's probably a little bit deeper than that, really, isn't it? It's, you know, Ruth mentioned the word art or artist. Um, and there was that famous case where I think it was a gorilla or a chimpanzee took a selfie of itself. And that was one of the most sort of, you know, monetized pictures in, in recent times. And I can't remember the exact outcome of the case, but does that make that ape any more of a photographer than the Marcus ape that's learnt to walk upright and holds a camera. So despite the similarities between myself and, and the monkey, um, the difference is is that if I take a, a photo, it's taken for a reason with a purpose, whereas we have to assume that the monkey didn't realise what it was doing when it took a photo of itself and it was just luck. It's a bit like you know, the chimpanzee and the typewriter, if you give enough time, it could write war and peace. It doesn't make the, the chimpanzee a writer, does it, or an author? Okay, so I have a question for the both of you on this. Why do you think it is that this is such a bother to people? Why do people want to know um, if someone's a photographer or not? Is it because they see an image and think, oh, that's not very good, you shouldn't call yourself a photographer? Where's this all coming from? It's almost like um, people who... Uh, consider themselves photographers for whatever reason that might be it's almost like they're gatekeeping a little bit mm. and they don't want to let too many people into the club yep. and you know there's so many people with a smartphone now or with any kind of camera that there's a hell of a lot of people in the club if by definition the fact that you have a camera makes you a photographer so the club's getting too big and people don't like it and they're trying to trim it back and say no here's the definition i'm this and you're not what about if somebody is technically very proficient with a camera, but artistically and the way they interpret the scene in front of them uh, compositionally or using the, you know, the, the actual artistic side of the brain as opposed to the technical, does that make them a photographer? Are you talking about yourself? <laughs> well, you know very well that technically I definitely can't operate a camera. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, that that that's that kind of even adds to the debate, doesn't it? Because there are two sides to photography, and, and you know as well as I do, James, that we get uh, customers who come on workshops and trips, and some people are very creative, but they they struggle on the technical side of things, and you get other people who know more about their cameras than than you and I would, um, but they don't see the picture. Personally, I think it comes down to the, that real definition of a word. I think photographer is a profession. So if you make your make your living at it, you're a photographer. And if you don't, then 
You're just an, an artist. Does that answer the question, Ruth? I'm not sure we're any closer, to be honest, to answering the question. You've, you've thrown up more than I think I gave you in the first place, but it was worth a try. And we've got another question coming up next month, actually. We might have some more luck with uh, the big question, which is going to be, why is the photography world so male-dominated? So you guys can think about that, or whoever's actually going to be in with me uh, next month. But in the meantime, I think we need to do this. What is the point? Ah, oh, what's the point? <laughs> Excellent. Well, let me explain what this is. We're basically going to be looking at different camera techniques and asking what is the point of it. And today, uh, James and Marcus, I want to know what both of you think about focus stacking. Go. Blimey. Okay, well, this is something that personally I have never done. Um, and I see an awful lot of people doing it when it is completely unnecessary. So uh, focus stacking, in case you don't know, is when you take several images of the same scene and you bracket the focus. So you, you focus on your nearest point, take a shot, you focus a bit further into the scene, take another shot, and keep going until you get to the background. Now, sometimes you might only have to take two shots, one on the foreground, one on the background, but other times, I know people who have done 9, 11, 15 shots to get the plane of focus to run all the way through the scene. Now, most of the time, it's completely unnecessary, um, but I think it's just one of those things that's very in vogue. Um, and so people do it because they think it's kind of the cool thing to do. Um, but personally, I've never done it. Um, I've never found a need to do it. If tomorrow I found myself in a situation where um, I had to do it, I don't know whether I'd be able to, to be honest. What about you, James? Uh, well, I don't know. Was it 30 plus years taking pictures both commercially uh, and for fun or indeed on workshops? Never, ever, ever come across a situation where it would be necessary. Now, admittedly, I'm not shooting food or close-ups of product or whatever. So there may be a need in that particular area, although... The, the end result would be achieved by using another method other than focus stacking anyway, ironically. So the number of times, as you sort of alluded to, I've stood on a workshop or, you know, on a trip somewhere and heard a shutter going multiple times and thought, blimey, must be something really exciting going on over there. And actually, it's just somebody focus stacking for absolutely no point whatsoever other than to, you know, I don't know fill up their memory cards or something and they don't look natural anyway focus stack pictures they simply don't so i think what was the name of this what was the name of this feature anyway what's the point i mean it really does sum it up okay so exactly what you've just said about they don't look natural that hits the nail on the head because lots of people they go through all this effort to take several photos and then they spend extra time at the editing stage now I don't know how long that takes I think probably it doesn't take as long as I think it would probably take because it's probably automated now I know that even some cameras can do it automatically um, in the menu system but regardless of how you do it you're still adding to your workload at the editing stage and the end result is worse than if you hadn't done it at all. So you've just spent extra time to achieve a result that's not as good as had you not have spent any time on it at all. And it comes back to the question of why would you want everything sharp from front to back anyway? And I'm not saying that you, you never do, but let's just take a landscape for an example. If you've got a landscape and your subject is in the background, but you've got something as foreground interest, 
why would you want that foreground interest to be pin sharp? Because it's just going to compete with the with the subject in the background. You want to give a message to the viewer. I want you to look here. Here's my subject. It's over here. If you've got flowers in the foreground, which are not your subject, that are pin sharp, that's where the viewer is going to look. And therefore, you, you failed as a photographer because you haven't sent the right message to the viewer. So you can't define yourself as a photographer, which was our big question, if that's the case, because you failed. I think what Marx is uh, uh, alluding to really is if you were sitting in that scenario with some flowers in the foreground of your landscape and you were looking you know, the point of focus, whatever it might be in the distance, a, a mountain peak or whatever it might be. In your peripheral vision, would those flowers be sharp? No, they would not. So why are you trying to make them pin sharp in a picture? Maybe it's to win a prize in a photographic competition because the world is full of photographic judges out there who are obsessed by front-to-back sharpness. Well, any any guesses? Why are people? Because I've spent a lot of time recently looking at a lot of images by a lot of, a lot of different people and front-to-back sharpness seems to be the thing that everybody wants to do. What, what is the draw if you think it's not natural and it's taking people's focus away? Well, they think it looks modern. They think it looks modern. You know, do they, though, why. or do they just think it looks good? Well, they think it looks good, but I also think that in 10 years' time, people will look at photos that have been focus-stacked with this front-to-back critical sharpness running through the entire photos and go, oh, dear, that looks a bit 2020. Well, that also comes on to AI. That's AI, because AI will have everything front-to-back before you know it, everything. Yes. And then people will want more organic, more original, more sort of authentic-feeling imagery. 10 years ago... The big thing was HDR, where you would do very similar to focus stacking, but instead of focus stacking, you would bracket your exposure instead of bracketing the, the plane of focus. And then you'd throw it all together um, and you'd end up with this hideous result that just looks completely fake. And now when you see HDR images, you go, oh, that's a bit 2012. Um, and the, the same will happen in 10 years' time. And my advice to photographers if if they want it this is don't try and be clever don't do anything that's in fashion because all you're doing is you're giving your images a shelf life if you just play it straight down the road middle of the road keep it simple then in 50 years time a landscape photo will still look fresh because the landscape doesn't change obviously if you're doing street photography then that's going to date it but if you're taking a picture of the old man of store and you don't do anything clever in it, you don't focus stack it, you don't HDR it, in 50 years' time, it will still look like it was taken yesterday. Well, I think that was probably fairly conclusive. And if you disagree with our panellists, then do let us know what you think of Focus Stack. And we've posted our What's the Point uh, a picture in our Photography Online Facebook and our Instagram page as well. So do give us your thoughts in the comments on there. Which brings us on to our final feature, but one which I am very much looking forward to. Does the world really need this? So in this section of the show, we will be looking at some of the newest photo gear releases and asking that very question. And first up this month is a new colour film from Harman Technologies, the people who make Ilford's famous black and white film. So did the world really need a new colour film? Marcus, let's go to you. Well, in my opinion, the answer is a very big yes, because even though this is only an experimental film, and by uh, Harman's own admission, it's not perfect. They know that. Um, so no one's going to go out and uh, shoot this film and go, this is the best film I've ever used. But what's really, really good about this is that for the last 10 years, 
uh, well, all the big colour film manufacturers have been in decline. So Fuji, they haven't admitted it yet, but they've pretty much stopped making um, you know, most of their colour films. Kodak only make a handful of, of the colour films that they used to make. And they're the only two really big players in the world. So the fact that we've now got a new company that's already a major player in black and white, they've got the, the heritage and they've got the resources to take this further. The fact that they've deemed it important enough to spend a year in R&D and pumping, you know, in the millions of pounds into producing this new film is fantastic news because this is just the first step, if you like, of their colour journey. So we should be sitting here in, say, two, three, four years' time and we might have three or four films to choose from that are all made by Harman and they'll be much better than the one that they've just released. So this is uh, a 200 ISO speed film and it says, because I'm looking at it right now, high contrast, strong grain. Now, I... and indeed Ruth shot some of this film when we were in Venice and although Ruth and I are yet to see the results I know that you have Marcus so where are we at with because you know reading it says it's high contrast strong grain plenty of visible grain and it has an analog character and I I mean personally I quite like the sound of this because it it seems to me that if you're going to go down the analog route then you might as well fully go down it and I and I take your point or I understand that this is a development product and that, you know, there's more development in the years ahead. And hopefully a 120 version will come along um, as well. But for a C41 processing-based film that, you know, I mean, I haven't shot a roll of this stuff for years, but, you know, you've seen the stuff from Venice. What was it like? Uh, Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because when they first sent me uh, a couple of roles to try out, this was probably three months ago before it had even been announced. So I was under strict instructions not to let anybody see it or tell anybody about it. Um, And because I'm shooting the film blind, I've got, you know, when you shoot film, you you normally pick a, a film to suit the scene. But if you don't know what that film is going to uh, you know, replicate or how that film is going to replicate the scene, it's very difficult to do that. So I'm shooting this film blind. So um, the my contact at Harmon, he said to me, my advice would be to make your subject really big in the frame. And, and I think the reason he told me to do that is because it's so grainy that um, this film, when you try and blow it up too big, it really starts to fall apart. Um, so that's something that they can definitely uh, improve on going forward. But, but does it really fall apart, though? Or is it, I mean, I, haven't, I clearly haven't seen it, but in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, you'd be told not to push film too far or push processing too far, you know, not to blow things up too much because it starts to fall apart. But, it, you know, actually, if you look back, you know, I've got boxes of prints that were printed in theory where everything has been pushed too far and actually it adds a certain feel that sort of you know looking at them now I really like the fact that the grain's falling off and things like that I mean would you want this film to get any better or it's good surely no where I was going with this just to address your point there a good analogy would be to look back on when digital cameras first came onto the market and they were typically three four megabytes and, uh, and that was it. So if you imagine taking a photo on a three megabyte camera um, and then trying to blow it up to A3, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't take that kind of enlargement. And it's similar with this Harman Phoenix is that the grain is so big 
that when you look at it at small magnifications, that everything seems sharp. But when you magnify it too much, the sharpness just disappears because the grain is is so big. But what's interesting is that when I shot my first roll, I was shooting blind. And although I had the the tip off from the guy at Harman saying, make sure you keep your subject big in frame. I didn't always do that. But having seen the results of that first roll, I now know exactly how the film reacts. And so when I'm shooting it, I can shoot specifically knowing what that film's going to do. So did the world really need it, Marcus? Oh, well, absolutely it did. Not because it's a great film necessarily and it's a great product, but just because it represents hope for the future. <laughs> Fabulous. All right. Well, another product that is new to the market this month is a hybrid digital film camera, something I've actually dreamt of for a long time. It's the Fuji Instax Evo. Now, Marcus, I don't have one, but I think there's one in your world somewhere. Does the world need it? Uh, again, the answer from me is an emphatic yes. Uh, so I've just bought one of these for my daughter for Christmas. Um, now, previous to this, she had a uh, another Instax camera um, and it was a traditional Instax camera where you press the button and it takes a picture and the film slides out the side of the camera and then you wait a minute so that you can see you know, the photo developing before your eyes, at which point this cloak of depression sets upon you as you realise that the person you just took a photo of was blinking and you've just wasted a pound on the film which you now throw in the bin and then you take another one. Those days are gone with this camera because the way it works is that when you take a photo all it does is it captures that photo digitally and then you can edit that photo on the screen on the back of the camera and you only print it when you're happy with it. So if you take a photo and you've got a blinker, then you can just delete it and take another one. There's no wastage of any film. So is it the same as just having a tiny printer on the back of a camera? What's the difference? Well, exactly, that's it. And you can um, apparently link it up to your phone via Bluetooth um, and you can print photos that you've taken on your phone. So there's so many uses for this camera. And yes, it's £175, which is cheap for a camera, but it's expensive for a, a an Instax mini camera, which would typically generally be about £100, Mark. So we're looking at another, almost double the price. But there's so many ways that this camera will save you money. And I'll give you a couple now. Number one is that if you want to shoot black and white Instax film, it's almost double the price of colour film. But with this one, you can take a photo, you can edit it to be black and white, and then you can print it out in black and white on colour film. So it reduces the, you know, the need to spend more money getting dedicated black and white film. So that's one way that you can save money. Another way to save money is not to waste film by printing photos that you're, you're never going to use. But what I really like about this camera is it looks very classic. And um, even though it's not a film camera, it has the winder lever on the top. And that is the lever that you that you pull out when you want to print. And it's just so nice having that action rather than just a button or you know a menu on a, a, a screen just saying print. Because it cool. actually feels like something, something epic is about to happen when you do that thumb movement with the winder. So definitely, yes, the world does need it. I think so, yes. I think it's a great, great addition. All right, well, another product which will be arriving soon on the shelves is a new wide-angle lens. Now, I remember when 24mm was described as super wide and then they made the 16mm, which was called ultra-wide. Not sure how they're going to describe this one, maybe super-duper extra-wide. We're talking, of course, if you don't know, about the Canon 10-20mm to f4. James, does the world need it? 
Well, in answer to your question what they call it, according to Canon, they call it the ultra-wide and ultra-portable. Does the world really need it? 99.99999% of people do not need this lens at all, unless the portability is a thing, because it is, interestingly, much, much smaller than the 11 to 24 mil, which is a lens I use virtually, I don't know, certainly every week. Um, and I use it for shooting property. Um, and it's a fantastic lens for that. Um, this gives you an extra one mil of width. Is it? No, the world doesn't need it is the answer, Ruth. I mean, I could read all the it's steady and stable and all of the bump on the Canon website about it. But no, the world really doesn't need this lens, I'm afraid. I might, but the world doesn't. Marcus, who's it aimed at then? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question because personally, I think that 10 millimetres on a full frame camera is just so offensively wide you can't possibly make use of it unless you're shooting very specifically like James does a lot of um, interior architectural photography for warehouses and everything and you could argue that yep the wider the better um, because this is this is as wide as fisheye but without the distortion obviously but personally um, I've got a 12 to the widest lens I have for my digital setup is a 12 to 24 millimeter lens um, and the only time I will ever use that is for interior hotel room shots uh, anything like that so if I'm taking you know portraiture landscapes then very rarely will I go wider than 24 because the, it just distorts the way that we see the world too much and you don't end up with Absolutely. an authentic looking photo interestingly I would say that anything wider than 35 millimetres distorts the world, but you know, that's a slightly different conversation. But looking at the Canon website, yes, they've got a couple of shots um, of interiors. Fine, they look perfectly great and good. But their main sort of hero shot is a chap who I presume is taking a picture at 10 millimetres out of a helicopter. So I wonder what he's actually photographing out of a helicopter. But I, I tell you what will happen here, and I and I can guarantee this will happen. The moment that lens is uh, available to buy, which is pretty much any time now, lots of people who can afford it will go out and buy it. They will go out and they will take super, super wide landscape shots just because they can, because they're going, wow, this is wider than anything I've ever had before. And they'll look back at those images and go, why, was I, why did I take that? It's a bit like, the novelty when you know you, you get your first fisheye lens and you you keep it on the camera permanently for two weeks and you take everything with fisheye and then the novelty wears off and you never use it again does the world really need it i do but the world doesn't i would say no but some people will say yes <laughs> fair enough all right well our final one in this section it's a, a new gadget which should be starting to ship this month i believe it's called the arsenal 2 and the Pro 2, which does not give much away at all. Now, James, explain to us, what is it, and does the world really need it? No, the world does not need this, Ruth. It's a load of utter tosh, honestly. Will you tell, tell us what it is? Well, I'm not terribly technical, but it's a thing that sits on top of your, your camera and plugs into your camera and does everything for you via an app, or it says it does everything for you anyway. Now, to be fair, I've never used it Um and never will. But, you know, it says unlock the full potential of your DSLR or mirrorless camera. Arsenal's ultra-light hardware. Well, I don't know what that's got to do with anything. It uses state-of-the-art AI to take better photos in any conditions. Never miss the perfect shot. Bring out the wow in your photos. Now, fair play to Arsenal. It's a nice website and I'm sure it's a perfectly good product and it probably does pretty much everything that they're claiming it to do. 
However, the question is, does the world need it? No, what the world needs is, you know, somebody behind the camera actually looking at the camera. Now, one of the big bugbears I have anyway is with mirrorless cameras or any kind of cameras is really people using the LCD on the back to take pictures rather than the viewfinder. Now, this takes it one step further. You don't even use the viewfinder on the back of your camera or, you know, uh, uh, the LCD. You actually use your phone. So I suppose you can Snapchat and Instagram and do all the same things at the same time you're taking of pictures. But apparently you never miss that perfect shot because with just a single tap, you can activate Arsenal Smart Assistant AI. The Smart Assistant is trained on thousands of great photos, cl clearly not trained on how to speak English, a bit like me. It will determine and fine-tune the optimal settings for the scene you're shooting. <laughs> Now, that single tap, surely, just single tap on the side of your head, learn how to take some pictures, whether they be good or bad, and have some fun. You don't need, you don't need to do this, honestly. It's, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, called subject motion, texture analysis, focus depth needed, shot, all sorts of words, a load of utter, utter tosh. But I'm thinking, you know, we're in the, we're in the new year now. Um, it's a little while till Marx's birthday, but I think I might save up and buy him one. It might, it, you know, it might help him out. Uh, personally, I think this is actually damaging for uh, photography a, a, as a whole, because what it's basically saying is that you don't need to get any better as a photographer. You don't need to learn anything anymore because this will save you from having to do all of that. So what's the point in taking any photos anymore? I suppose it's the same as most things. It's uh, trying to make everything easier. Anyway, I've just pre-ordered it. I've pre-ordered it. Excellent. Well, listen, this almost brings us to the end, I think. Almost. Of our first ever show. Do let us know what you're thinking. Um, if you want to rate it on whatever platform you're listening on, we'd really appreciate that, as long as it's good. Uh, you can also help us spread the word by telling anyone you think might enjoy listening, whether they're out uh, on their commute, maybe they're out in the garden doing something. But before we go, I just need to tell you uh, what you can look forward to on our next YouTube show which is available from 4pm on Sunday the 4th of February we will be following the guys on day one of their National Parks Challenge to see if it all falls apart from the start and uh, we'll then be off to the Peak District in the UK to do some light painting with one of the leading experts in the field and then I think James you're off to the zoo yeah we have a great time Harry and I uh, a bit of, bit of wrangling was involved with Harry at the zoo you know what he's like with his animals but um, yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. Okay, excellent. Well, I guess tune in to find out more about that. Uh, Marcus, you're off to a remote lighthouse to get a very specific shot, I think, aren't you? Uh, I am, yes, and that uh, it was quite a struggle, that, because um, I needed to do it in quite extreme conditions, so um, it's not easy to recall video, especially the sound, when you're standing in 60-mile-an-hour winds, but that was my, my challenge, and um, I, I think, at least for the video, I was partially successful. All right, well, that is coming out, so keep an eye on our socials, YouTube channel, etc., uh, for that and also don't forget to join us for our PO live show on Sunday the 21st of January Now this will uh, usually only be available to our Photography Online official supporters who we call our poos uh, for short so to find out how you can become one of our poos do head on over to our YouTube channel and press the join button underneath any of the videos and uh, you'll get more information on there but until next month thank you so much for tuning in and you know what to do take good care but most of all take good photos the photography online podcast 